It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Okay, folks. Well, my my partner and my buddy and my son, Rich, why, uh, I'll just tell you right now, he's doing jury duty. Have you ever been on a jury? Uh, Rich hadn't, and so that's what he's doing right now. And uh, being a good citizen, by the way. So I'm I'm here alone, and I just thought we'll do a lot of talking. And I want to explain. Uh, no argument, for goodness sake. I just want to talk and explain how I feel about this contentious problem that we have in America right now over Roe versus Wade. That the Supreme Court, you see, seems... Um, by all appearances, maybe, they say, well, look, we shouldn't have been fooling with it in the first place. Uh, at best, it's a state issue. And let the people, uh, closer to the people, make up their own mind how they want to deal with that. That's the way murder, you know, is treated. Did you not know that? It's a state court. It's a state law. It's a state issue. And that's how murder is involved, unless it involves a federal crime. Anyway... We're not teaching our children much about history and civics and all of that for many, many years. But the Supreme Court looks like it may say uh, it really belongs to the people. Let them decide at the state level and that sort of thing. Now, Paul Harvey, Paul Harvey, man alive, what a wise man he was. And one of his audio clips that we have is when he said, if he were the devil, listen to this. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, chart in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. 
I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Yeah. Good day. Okay, folks. Tell you what now, I'll leave it up to you. As a matter of fact, uh, everything I'm going to say today is up to you. As an individual person, you must decide where you stand on life. Isn't that something? Now, um, however you feel about it, I want you to just hear some actual statements and things that have happened. Here is about a little baby, a little baby, a tiny little baby. Now, we could argue as to whether it's a baby or a fetus or, or a child or a teenager. I mean, no, 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 it's a human being. Uh, here is a audio clip about a little human being still in the mother's womb. However, they're doing surgery to help that little baby live. Listen to this. Operating on a fetus still inside the mother's womb. This time, doctors operated on a tiny fetal heart. And after some risky setbacks, we were there as the family said goodbye to the team that saved their baby. You're going home. Baby Juan and his parents are headed back to Uruguay, where the infant is a celebrity. Since October, the family has been camped out at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where doctors saved Juan's life with an intervention that's largely unheard of in many places. After the fetal surgery, the pregnancy continued as the family waited in Philadelphia. At 31 weeks, Juan was born. Juan is now three months old and healthy. Mm -hmm. There you go, folks. There you go. Now, the next thing I want you to hear is what Bernard Nathanson said, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, an eminent doctor, and as a matter of fact, he was a founder of NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League. Man, he was a founder. Uh, he was a big shot. And then one day he woke up, and each of us have to face that, wake up and get real, and um, in his case, it was when science wasn't even as extensive as it is now. So those of you who say, well, I don't go to your church, and you don't go to my church, so just leave me alone. I'm talking about science. It's no longer even a question. This is what Dr. Bernard Nathanson said. Here it is. My conversion on this issue was not some kind of overnight epiphany. Uh, it was the result of my working in the area of fetology 
from the years 1973 to 1977. Uh, fetology, as you know, is a new science. It uses new technology, such as ultrasound and uh, electronic fetal heart monitoring, many other uh, new uh, modalities, which are sophisticated and fantastic. And we have opened up the whole life of the fetus for study and of course, those studies have uh, finally culminated in a growing realization that the fetus is entirely similar, identical to any of us, that it's a member of the human community, and as a result, all the rights and privileges and protections which we are afforded should, of course, uh, flow to that person. The expanding, the burgeoning of fetology has created and is creating <clears throat> a very serious problem in hospitals. There is a paradox, an antinomy, if you like, in that on one floor of a hospital, we are now diagnosing the illness of the fetus. We are using all these technologies to treat it with medication. And we are even performing surgery on it now. And on the next floor down, that very same fetus is being casually destroyed for no reason whatever. Now that is creating, as I say, an intolerable moral tension in hospitals. And as the public begins to realize more and more through the media that fetology is an expanding and a, an exciting science and is, is giving us a new perception of the fetus, it is creating an increasing tension in a lot of sectors in the public as well. You know, it's curious that in no other branch of medicine than I know of do we bring to bear expensive and increasingly sophisticated technology for diagnosis of the patient's illness or disorder only thereupon to eradicate it. Uh, not the illness, but the patient. So, as I say, we, we, we cannot continue to allow this kind of moral tension to accumulate. It is ripping apart various segments of medicine now. And now we are in a very different quandary. Those of us who practice medicine, who practice obstetrics, now Dr. Morgenthal does not practice obstetrics. He is not a fetologist. He does not understand these things. Uh, but on the other hand, you see those of us who do are caught in this psychological and moral whipsaw, where on the one hand we are treating the patient, and on the other hand we are casually destroying it. Isn't that something? Isn't that amazing, folks? Wake up and think. By the way, as an aside here, I was watching the Republican primary uh, elections in the state of Nebraska. And, um, and Jim... Pillen, P-I-L-L-E-N, from uh, Columbus, Nebraska. Uh, he won. And when I heard his, his uh, speech and acceptance speech and everything he said, I thought, wow, I'd love every state to have a governor like that. Jim Pillen, uh, he's going to be the Republican nominee in the general election for governor of the state of Nebraska. And we're going to be talking about that a lot on our many Nebraska radio stations as time goes on. But let's go on now because Abby Johnson, Abby Johnson was working for Planned Parenthood and very successfully making them a ton of money. Man, she was a good manager, I think, of the largest Planned Parenthood facility at that time in Texas. Uh, and she was doing fine until, until, listen to this. The day that I witnessed the ultrasound-guided abortion, 
I didn't know that it was going to be a significant day. It seemed like a pretty normal abortion day for us. We had a visiting abortionist come in that day. We were trying him out to see if we wanted to put him on our permanent uh, rotation of physicians. He owns a private practice, him and his wife work at that private practice and he had told me a couple weeks before when I was talking to him that he did a different type of abortion procedure and it was a type where he used ultrasound guidance and it was something I had never seen before. Um, I was actually pretty interested in what he was talking about because he had told me that it was the safest type of abortion procedure for the woman because you're actually able to visualize what is happening in the uterus. My job during the procedure was actually to hold the ultrasound probe on the woman's belly during the procedure and that way he would be able to see the ultrasound screen and to actually see the baby on the screen during the abortion. And I remember putting the probe on her belly and looking up at the screen and saw a perfectly formed uh, side profile from head to foot um, of a baby on the screen. They did uh, a crown rump measurement and found that the baby was 13 weeks. Um, I remember one of the first thoughts I had was remembering that that picture on the ultrasound looked just like the picture that we had of my daughter Grace when I was about 12 weeks pregnant with her and thinking that it looked very similar and I, I kind of got a pit in my stomach and I remember thinking, you know, I don't think this is going to be the great learning experience that I was hoping for. He then began the procedure and uh, I saw the cannula, which is uh, the actual straw-like instrument uh, that's hooked up to the suction. I saw that um, go into the woman's uh, uterus, which I thought was interesting. I'd never seen that before. And uh, the cannula actually began to uh, probe the side of the baby and nothing was happening. Women ask a lot of questions when they come in to have an abortion. And one of the questions that they ask probably most often is, will my baby feel this? And the scripted answer that Planned Parenthood gives to that question is, no, the fetus does not have any sensory development until 28 weeks. And so that was the scripted answer that I had given to hundreds and hundreds of women um, over and over again. And so that was the answer that I was replaying in my head over and over again as I was watching this. And as I was thinking about that answer, all of a sudden I, I saw the baby kind of jump. And uh, it, was if, it was as if the baby was moving away from the cannula. It didn't like what it was feeling on its side and it wanted to, to get away from it. And um, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching because I realized that all of that that I had been told was a lie and I couldn't help but think, what else? was a lie. You know, what else was I believing that, that wasn't true? And I just, I watched in horror, you know, I, I didn't, it was like I didn't want to look at it, but I couldn't stop looking at it. And the, the woman on the table was, was very, you know, she was upset, she was in pain, I wanted to comfort her, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop looking at what was happening on the screen. 
and uh, the physician asked for the technician to turn on the suction machine and um, she did and you know with every twist of that cannula I could see you know the baby's body twisting and, and turning and I just I, you know I couldn't believe what I was watching and and then within just a few moments the screen was black and it was over and I just thought gosh that you know that's it I mean that that's choice that's what I've been fighting for for eight years you know and I, I couldn't help but think of of all of those women that I had lied to, not intentionally. I mean, I didn't mean to lie to them when they asked me, will my baby feel this? But I, I just thought, what if they had known the truth? You know, what if I had known the truth? I mean, if those women had known the truth, would it have made a difference? Because it mattered to them. You know, they asked for a reason and I had just flat out lied to them. And I, I just couldn't, couldn't help but think, what if they had known the truth? What if so many other people in our society actually knew the truth about abortion and what choice is actually doing to these children in the womb. Mm. Oh, Abby Johnson, Abby Johnson, everything you've expressed, I'm sure, has been on the mind and the heart of people listening to this broadcast right now, uh, very innocently and sometimes selfishly. How could I speak for an individual person other than myself? But this broadcast is to ask people to hear it and then think and then make up their own mind. Now, Dr. Elvita King was Reverend Martin Luther King's niece. Martin Luther King's brother was Dr. Elvita King's father. So she was the niece and she is the niece. And, um, and Alvita, I know she told me also, when she was getting into her t young adult and, and 20s or whatever, you know, when she had abortions herself. And then she woke up. And she realized what actually it's about. Listen to what she says. Abortion, like slavery, is a crime against humanity. So we know that slavery is a sin, slavery is wrong, sex trafficking, for example. But somehow, uh, the script was flipped. And so it became a civil right to abort a child. It became a woman's reproductive right. But nobody really examined the motives behind it because the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, said that colored people are like weeds. They need to be exterminated. Let's not let the word get out. So they came up with a plan to sell an idea to women, and black women especially, that it was a reproductive right to decide whether you would birth a child or not. My uncle, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., <laughs> I like to say Reverend. He and my dad, Reverend A.D. King, brothers, were preachers, and their daddy, Daddy King, was a preacher. So A.D.M.L. and Daddy King. So Martin Luther King, Jr., in a Christmas sermon, said, when you value the human personality, you won't kill anybody. And uh, I first heard that read by Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Life. And he uses that all the time. And my uncle really cared about every human being. We must recognize that abortion is a sin. It is a crime 
against humanity. Congress needs to acknowledge that that's not just a lump of flesh in the womb. That's not just a blob of tissue in the womb. That's a human being. And so that's an innocent human being. And if the child was conceived in America and being born in America, an innocent American whose rights are being violated. Yeah. Oh, man. And you know, that's where you are right now, folks. Don't you really think the Supreme Court, if they do overturn Roe v. Wade, it simply is saying there's nothing constitutional that we can find. Our job is to deal with constitutional law. And there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that deals with this. So let's put it back with the states and let the states decide. So here we go now. Um, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. What a wonderful senator he is. This is what he said. Mr. President, I rise in support of Senate Bill 130, which I am proud to co-sponsor. This legislation would ensure that health care providers treat babies born alive after failed abortion attempts with the same care they would treat any other baby born at the same stage of pregnancy. And I also want to thank the senator from Nebraska for his leadership on this issue and for bringing this issue to the floor. You know, in one sense, it's very hard to imagine that this legislation is even necessary. In the United States of America, in the 21st century, when every day new advanced technologies bring new revelations about the wonders of human life, it is hard to fathom the extremism the politicians in New York and now Virginia who would deny the protections of law to the most vulnerable members of our society, the innocent unborn, and allow them to be aborted, allowed them to be killed right up to the moment of birth. It is hard to comprehend statements like those of Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who said that if he had his way, infants who survived abortion attempts would be deliver, delivered and kept comfortable, that's his phrase, kept comfortable, while the doctor and the parents decided her fate. Is this really what it has come to in the United States? Is this really the social vision of today's Democrat Party? Because frankly, I can't imagine a vision less just or less consistent with the goodness and compassion of the American people. But in another sense, Mr. President, perhaps we should not be so surprised. After all, the cruelty and extremism advocated by a growing number of Democrat politicians was the conventional wisdom for much of recorded history. We often hail the ancient Greeks as the founders of democracy. But of course, the most of the Greeks believed that most humans were born to be slaves and that their lives were utterly worthless. Well, they had a democracy, of course, but it was the democracy of the few ruling over the many. Romans took the same view. They kept most of their subjects in chains. They infamously killed children they didn't want, leaving them to be exposed on hillsides or desert, desert places. Romans had a republic, but citizenship was for the few. The strong ruled. Most lives, they thought, didn't matter. This has been the general rule of the ages. The Aztecs, Maya, Inca, all practiced child sacrifice. Archaeologists recently discovered a burial ground dated to the Chimu Empire in Peru where more than 140 children were dismembered in a ritual of sacrifice. And so it has gone down through the years. The strong prey upon the weak, 
The few rule the many. Individual lives don't count. But Mr. President, we here in the United States of America hold to a different conviction. Our Constitution was written. The whole edifice of American liberty depends on a very different belief, a belief as simple as it is powerful, that every life matters. We believe, and it is our pride to believe, that every person has dignity and worth, worth that is not given to them by the strong or the rich, that does not come to them from the state or the city, that does not depend on place of birth or social status, but is theirs by right because of who they are, human beings created in the image of the living God. That is our faith. And against the drift of history, it is a revolutionary creed. It is a creed that inspired the early Christians to re rescue those infants, the Romans left to die, and bring them up to be free. It led them to found hospitals and schools and later universities on the supposition that all people should be cared for, that all can learn, that all can govern themselves. It is a creed that has brought down empires and raised up the forgotten. It is the faith of our Constitution and of our whole way of life. And yes, we have struggled to realize it in this nation. We have struggled to make it real. We have fallen short many times. But this struggle for this faith defines our history and binds us together as Americans. And this faith is again at issue in our time. Now, I know some are tempted when they see this rising tide of barbarism and cruelty to feel despair. But I am not. I think of the words of Lincoln who spoke of the unfinished work of this nation. And I take courage that all these years later, we are a revolutionary nation still. So we must press forward in this generation for our revolutionary faith. Let us not go back to the darkness and cruelty of the past. Let us not go back to the arbitrary rule of the powerful and the few. Let us affirm again our founding belief in the equal worth and equal dignity of all. And as we do, Mr. President, we will do our part for liberty and justice in our day. Uh, friends, uh, this, of course, is a complete story. This is Dick Bott. Uh, my son is not with me today, so we have just been pondering uh, not to get in an argument. No, 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 no. Heavens no. It's up to you. It's up to you folks. Now, the listener comment line is 800-345-2621. Let me say it again, 800-345-2621. God bless you. This is Dick Bott with his chapter of The Complete Story as a public service, and I'll see you later. 